Welcome back to our second session on Talking Taboos, where we're talking suicide. Uh, I'm honored to have with me some of my friends and part of our community to share their personal stories on this. And before we get into that, I want to just quickly read you a scripture. It's found in 1 John, or sorry, it's found in John chapter 1, verse 5. And it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or the darkness could not extinguish it. This month, we're bringing light into dark spaces, because we know that when light comes into dark spaces, it overpowers darkness. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome our first guest, Allie Payne, to the stage. Hello, Allie. Good morning, Pastor Josiah. How are you? Very good. Allie is located in Vernon. Uh, she's married to Jeff, mother of two boys, and she has her own personal story to do with suicide. Uh, these days, you'll find her on social medias, TikTok, Clubhouse, Instagram, uh, where she's taken a passion as a parenting expert to help teenagers and parents mend their relationships and be fruitful in their relationships. Allie, why don't you tell us uh, just a brief bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I'm so passionate about teen parent relationships because I was that teen, which I will share some of that story with you. And I understand firsthand how painful that is. Mm. And <clears throat> when I became a parent, I thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to redo all of this negative cycles. And yet they kept showing up. And I thought, I've already done 10 years of personal development work. What is wrong with me? I must be flawed, obviously, because this parenting thing is very hard. <laughs> and uh, I went back to school for three years and became a certified life coach, certified relationship systems coach. And it was only then that I realized how dysfunctional relationships are set up, how to untangle them, but more importantly, how to heal from them and even prevent them with nuanced relationship skills that unfortunately nobody is being taught these days. And yet we're expecting both parents and teenagers to just know how to get on. And it doesn't work that way. And so I, that was 14 years ago. And I've spent uh, since then um, helping families and corporations as well work out toxicity in their relationships and learn these relationship skills to be the best versions of themselves and more importantly, support and champion each other to be the best version of themselves. That's great. That's really great. Well, Ali, you have a uh, story on suicide. Would you share with us your personal story on suicide? Absolutely. And thank you for having me here. I'm honored to share this. And thank you to anybody who is listening. I hope this is of some help to you. I grew up in a, in a home of generational trauma and emotional abuse, some physical abuse. And although on the outside, I was highly ambitious, I had it all together. I was an academic and athletic award-winning student. I was supposed to skip a few grades, but I didn't. Um, my parents felt socially that wouldn't be a great idea for me. So I really excelled and, and life was fun and easy outside of my house. But on the inside, I was a giant hot mess. I was so anxious and insecure from constantly not knowing uh, when I was going to be ridiculed or punished or um, worse. And that created a level of constant, a, a, dri a drive for perfection that is number one, unattainable. I hope you hear that. It's unattainable. And the drive to get there is life sucking. And I started uh, using my babysitting money at 12 years old to ride my bike to the mall to uh, take diet pills 
because I wanted to be thinner. I needed to be better in my body, which I was already extremely thin um, naturally because I, I wasn't perfect enough. There was nothing I seemed to do that could garner positive feedback, positive attention. Hmm. Um, I started drinking at 13. I was skipping school uh, at 15. And things really started to go downhill in my grade 11 year. I call it the grade 11 year now. It's quite, quite, um, that's, the, that's how the moniker has developed. <laughs> so I went from being a straight A student to entering some advanced education in high school. And partly because school came very easy to me, I, it was fun. I didn't have to try. I didn't have to study. I didn't have to have any strategies for learning, quite frankly, literally none. I also have a documented photographic memory. And so you see, I could just look at things and just get it. I, I was completely at ease around learning <laughs> until about grade nine when I hit these advanced education, um, which, which I had the intelligence to be in, but I had absolutely no emotional intelligence or coping skills to be in that. And so school got hard and I didn't know how to be in school feeling hard because my entire identity for the previous, at least my school career, for at least 10 years of school was, this is easy. I go, I show up, I do what they ask me, I get straight A's, it's easy. And that, my identity was literally crumbling hmm. because I only knew how to be a straight A student. I only knew how to be um, the award-winning athlete. And all of a sudden, all of, well, the strategies I didn't have weren't working. My grades were starting to suffer, but I could kind of comb over that. Um, I could, I could, oh, that was just, I uh, was a hard class. I was away a lot in sports that year. That was, you know, so this is going into grade 10 and coming up in grade 11. I was drowning. I knew three weeks into September that I didn't know how to do this. And I was also raised in a home again where asking for help was weak. Um, my parents are highly intelligent. My dad's get three grades. Um, not knowing how to do things was, was weak. It was shameful, um, almost punishable. And so asking for help, as counterintuitive as that seems for many parents, well, why wouldn't you just go ask for help? I mean, that's what teachers were there for. You just go ask for help. The story I had about asking for help was so damaging for me. I didn't know how to be a person who asked for help because it was, um, it was, it was not allowed almost in, in my construct mm -hmm. of being raised. So um, I didn't show up to many Mondays in my grade 11 year. I chose to just go elsewhere um, because that was my escapism. And by, I was starting to fail classes. So going from a straight A student to failing classes. Now, if you're a parent and you have a teenager, and this sounds familiar in a pandemic, I certainly hope you're not dealing with this situation, but it is similar as far as teenagers don't know how to cope with what they're currently given because there was no preparation and no training. I also was not prepared and I had no training. Right. And so coping for me looked like apathy because not caring was 
was so much less painful. It was the only the thinly veiled shield that I had not caring and failing hurt slightly less. At least you couldn't see what was really going on on the inside than mm -hmm. trying and failing, which that was in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Trying and failing was so far past by the time I showed up as already failing. And also I had never stopped caring. I just didn't know how to cope anymore. I was drowning. So by the time I hit, I believe it was February or March, I was also at a stage in my life, having been on the receiving end of significant, consistent, daily, negative, shaming, critical messaging, that I hit a level of self-loathing that I, even right now, right here, did not know was possible. Hmm. I remember sitting in the vice principal's office. I'm sure I got called in for truancy of some kind. I don't remember what he was saying, but I remember sitting in his chair and he was asking me some questions about something. And by the way, this is one of the first times as a straight A award-winning student that I was ever asked, I'm already failing out that anybody ever asked if something was maybe wrong or what was going on. Hmm. So just as a champion for teens, let's not wait for hmm. them to ask. Um, so I'm sitting there in the chair and, and I'm thinking, as he's asking me these questions, it doesn't matter what I'm about to say. What I'm going to say is irrelevant because I hated myself so vehemently that I remember sitting there thinking, I hate every word you're thinking I hate every word that you're about to say. In my peripheral vision, I could see my thighs and my jeans. I thought, you're a fat pig. I hate you. I hate every cell in your... There's nothing about you that I don't hate and hate so much. I would just breathe fire. I hate you. And that level of self-loathing was something that I'd already lived with. For some time, it was just coming to a crux. <laughs> it was coming to a head. And I decided that I didn't want to live that way anymore. I didn't, I, I couldn't escape it because it was in my head now. And it was also in my home. And I didn't know how to stop it. I had tried. I had tried telling other adults. I was whew, acting out in every which way a Sunday. I was not an easy teenager attempting to write a situation that I, I, I had no authority at that time to write mm. with people who didn't know how to hear me. So I decided the only way out was to end my life. And <clears throat> so I think it was March of my grade 11 year. And I remember um, deciding how I was going to do this. I was at home alone a lot. My parents were very involved in the community and in their own sports and activities. Um, and so I did all of my own sports and they did all of their own. So our schedules were entirely different. I was at home alone a lot, which also wasn't helpful. Um, and I decided I planned it out and I was going to, this, this was going to be the day. And I got to the moment and I remember sitting on the, the linoleum floor of my kitchen with my back against the cold brick of our chimney prickly and being okay here, you know, here we go. And then I froze. And, and I don't just mean I froze. I mean, I froze. My body turned to concrete and all I could move was my eyes. And I don't know how, I long, how long I sat there. I think it was 30 to 45 minutes. I sat there and all I could move was my eyes. 
and I could, I couldn't move a finger. I couldn't move a joint, not a toe, nothing. And after 45 minutes or so, half an hour, 45 minutes, I thought, okay, well, I guess this isn't happening. Um, so now what? <laughs> and so it, that was a tough one because it's such a feeling of hopelessness to not be able to end such traumatic pain hmm. and have no support, no champion, no ear. Um, there's no reprieve once it's already in here. Hmm. And so I, but I, I decided, okay, I don't want to live this way anymore. And if that wasn't the way out, well, then I got to figure something out. Mm -hmm. So essentially what I did was I limped through the rest of grade 11. Yeah. I did feel fail some courses. Um, and I knew if I just got to the summer, I could breathe. I could, I could just breathe. So I limped through the rest of the year, still didn't show up to many Mondays. Uh, my birthday's in, in May and my aunt, who was a teacher, had given me an agenda. And I decided over the summer to actually open this agenda and have a look at it. And I decided to look at what structures work for me. What do I need to feel my best? What do I need to do my best? And I used that agenda literally was a lifesaver. I put everything in my life in that agenda so I could lessen what was going on in here. I made uh, commitments to myself about how I was going to show up at school, what I was going to do as far as taking notes, et cetera, et cetera. And in grade 12, long story short, I became the straight A. I won the top academic athletic student and spent the next 10 years pursuing fiercely healing for myself um, mm -hmm. from eating disorders, anxiety, et cetera. And really, let's face it, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lifetime journey. Um, and that is now, as a parent of two boys, why I'm so passionate about doing what I do and sharing my story with other people like you. So thank you for listening. Oh, well, Allie, thank you for sharing that story. We're gonna, we're gonna bring Allie back uh, to the stage um, in a little bit here, but I want to invite up uh, another couple uh, friends of mine here in our Vernon location. Um, their names are Rachel and Jez Gledhill. Rachel and Jez are parents of four children. They've been married forever, basically. Um, his LinkedIn profile is longer than your arm could possibly be, um, and they're just all around great people. So help me welcome uh, to our virtual stage, Jez and Rachel Gledhill. Hello, guys. Hi. Welcome. How you doing, everyone? You've, you've lost the dog. There was a dog running around earlier. <laughs> there, there are two dogs in the room. It is uh, possible at any moment there were dogs will appear. Okay. But they've currently decided to be off, off, so, uh, off the view. So we'll, we'll prepare for additional guests to show up then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, tell, Rachel, tell us a little bit about the two of you. Ooh, we've been here for about... A year and a half now. We moved from Manchester in the UK. Um, like you said, we have four children, but only one of them is with us here now. And we live underneath my mother, who's upstairs, <laughs> who may appear at some point. <laughs> Excellent. Now, uh, obviously, we've invited the two of you here because you guys have a story to do with suicide. Would you share with us your story to do with suicide? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, it, it's really with my journey, um, and obviously Rachel's journey with me through this this time. Um, uh, it's probably almost 18 years ago now. I was uh, seven years into pastoring a church and in business, and um, I got to a point where um, 
I guess uh, my my dumpster, my, my life, I'd filled everything up. I was taking on so much. I was taking on the challenges of leading a church and some of the pastoral things. Um, we were doing a lot of that, which ended up that actually I, it filled it filled my world to overflowing. And I got to a point where I couldn't feel I could take it anymore. Um, I actually felt that actually my family would be better off without me. Um, I was struggling with major anger and I would lose it, lose it just like for nothing, over nothing, for nothing. Um, and I just got to a point where I just thought well, I'm better not to be here. I'd been masking, uh, you know, what I was doing with work and church um, and feeling like I was spinning plates that would just one would feel like it's falling and then I've got to grab another. Mm. And so on the surface, I probably, well, I thought I was look, handling everything well. But underneath, I was just walking down one step further down into darkness, further down into just despair of not being able to cope, not feeling I could tell anybody, not feeling I could do anything. And I got to a point where um, I just said, OK, this is this is my family going to be better without me because um, there's insurance money for H and, you know, or, yeah, uh, no, just just the fact that you go through these things. And I and I got to a point where I just thought that, that, that's it and I, I planned what I was going to do um, and uh, and uh, just kind of on that day on that day in particular um, I, <laughs> I had a phone call from a, a guy that I helped who struggled with who actually tried to commit suicide and I hadn't spoken to him six years, and he just rang me up, and he said, Jez, just don't do it. And, hmm. This is not planned. <laughs> and uh, that, that caused me to just stop at my tracks. Um, uh, Rach, later on in that day, appeared um, and just found me in my, in my room, staring out the window. I don't know how, how many hours I'd been just staring. Um, and apparently I was partially dressed and eating chocolate. <laughs> that, that was how she found me. Um, <laughs> what, that's, that wasn't what I was going to do. Um, and that started the process for me. I, I went to my leadership team and I, got, I went into counselling, um, which uh, I, I travelled. I literally, for a year, I travelled three hours to meet this counsellor who I trusted as a person that could have an input into my life. And I discovered a lot of things that, you know, the reasons why my need to be liked, to be accepted, my need to just try and actually spin everything and do everything and be seen that I can cope and handle everything um, was, was pretty, uh, it was helpful to me work through that. Um, uh, then a number of years ago, after that, we were still leading the church and stuff. we got a sabbatical um, uh, about nine years in and, um, uh, we went on this, my foot with a week off on holiday with some friends of ours. And then um, we came back and then Rach said, well, why don't we just go and have another meal with them to end the, our week? And I'm like, we just spent a week with them. Why do you want to drive two hours to go and meet them? Anyway, so we obviously we got in the car, a good <laughs> obedient husband, as he's told. And we drove and we went and have an India, we had a meal. And um, in this meal, um, we discovered like uh, our, our close friend's brother, we knew he'd been struggling with mental health over many years. And um, it came apparent that, that evening that things, there was questions. So um, myself and 
two others we went to uh, where he was living, and unfortunately, um, we we found him. Uh, we found him. He'd committed suicide. Um, he hung himself, um, and uh, the guys I was with, uh, one was his uh, brother, my, his my friend, who was his, his sort of uh, her husband's wife, her brother-in-law, whatever. And um, I had the uh, the hardest thing is to I I had the job to uh, hold him and cut him down and um, handle all that that comes with. Um, and um, that was that was a tough tough moment in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, we did pray. We did pray for all three of us Christians. We did pray that he'd be raised from the dead. Um, and, you know, because it's just, you kind of, I read it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we're just going to do this. And we just did this as part of the way our lives were at that time. And we did it. Um, we didn't. Um, and then obviously proceedings, the police and everything come in and you have to do all sorts of stuff. Um, but it also, because we we're on this sabbatical, it meant that, um, I had some free time. <laughs> I was meant to be doing other things, but because my my father was pastoring the church there, um, and I ended up staying for about three to four weeks, we had to bring the parents back and dealing with the trauma that the other side of it. Away, they were away in in Canada. Um, oh, they were away in Canada, um, and we had to deal with uh, you know had to go back and tell um, the guy who died, his sister, that is brother died deal with the family i kind of just suddenly got into just uh, running their world for an immediate the crisis the pain um that you know um you know very challenging time for everybody you know let alone me i mean i suffered from uh, ptsd from that that trauma which fortunately a friend of mine who was a police officer said you're going to experience this this is this is this is okay mm-hmm. to experience what you're going to experience um which we did, um, and just the devastation that the other side of uh, suicide can bring to families, mm-hmm. um, and we journeyed that through that with them. And um, I can't actually remember whatever else I did after that spectacle, but part of that anyway, because <laughs> that consumed a lot of my my time off. Um, and then um, if we step forward a bit more um, to maybe five, at least five years now. Um, I had come out from leading the church, moved into Manchester, was working in business. Um, I moved in different different types of businesses, um, and uh, I made a I made a big mistake. I made a big business mistake, which cost us a lot. I kept that away from Rach um, financially, um, which meant I had to earn a lot of money. I had to earn a lot quickly to keep the house, to keep mm. going, to keep moving. Um, I entered a different kind of business. Um, I did everything they asked me to do. I achieved the, the goals, and yet underlying in there, there were political things going on, um, which ended me being um, them saying, "Thanks for all you've done. You've achieved the things we asked you to do, but we're ending your contract." And so I went from uh, handling all the finance problems, and yet they're now in a situation where I'm out of work, um, and that just literally just spun me like good and proper i was i was back there again um i had jumped you know uh i, I kind of i i've used this thing that it's like I've, you jump when you the process of suicide or feeling that depressed state is like I've, i kind of in my mind this is me personally i kind of have the 12 step i have this I mean, there's 12 steps but there's 12 steps you go down in darkness mm. let alone 12 steps for re you know re, 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 and and i was suddenly i, I felt i was already challenged at step three, but suddenly I just dropped straight down and it really just, um, yeah, I was in trouble, big trouble. And 
fortunately, um, it kind of I was able to 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 not, um, and my family got behind me and around me to help me. Um, and then that's where I really discovered a, a program that really helped me, which is Celebrate Recovery, um, which is an international program um, that really dealt with what's under the surface, what's under my life, under my surface. Um, again, having nearly done it once gone through the journey of helping people through the the, the trauma of suicide i'm there again mm. um and i think one of the things i've had to to learn through that is just um is i guess realistically understanding things in my past and working through that way but also just the fact that um it's okay to not be okay because mm. um, i always had to put the front on i was right. traveling at the time i'll relate rachel and i's relationship was bad when on that second time when yeah. I was doing, I was driving, you know, I, did, I drove 96,000 miles in one year, plus international flying around the world. So in one way, I looked like I had it all. I was mm -hmm. flying to New York, Milan, Paris, um, you know, Italy. I was, you know, but actually underneath, I was just, I was that far gone. It was just like, this is just because there was other pressures and stresses. So, mm -hmm. so that was kind of where we are. And then working through that over 12 months was kind of, where my and over and then obviously then getting involved more with a program like celebrate recovery was really helpful so you can see what <laughs> you're the one you to no that's that's terrific thank you for sharing that story um well we're gonna turn just quickly to a, an advertisement for next week uh for our next series uh our next topic to tell you just how you can submit some questions anonymously for that. And then we're going to be back with Ali, Rachel, and Jez as we dig deeper into this topic. So we're back with Jez, Rachel, and Ali, and we're talking suicide. Now, I, I understand and I, I get it. You might squirm just by hearing that word. Um, but for so many of us, it's a dark space that doesn't get talked about, which makes it so much harder to talk about it if it's something that you're going through. Imagine this scenario for a moment. You are a person struggling with depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts, and you are afraid of what people are going to say if you say something. Or maybe you're on the other side of that equation. What would happen if a friend of yours, a family member, came to you right now and said, hey, I am I'm thinking about suicide. Would you know what to say? Would you know what to do? So many of our well-intentioned responses don't quite have the reactions that we hope for. Even just in this day and age, wherever you are right now, your response to someone who has gone through suicide or died by suicide is telling the people around you how you would respond if they said something to you. Be careful in the scenarios that you find yourself in and how you respond, because as Christians, as people who love Jesus, we always want to be a people who respond out of love. The reason we bring this topic to our sites today isn't just to talk about something that may be difficult. We bring it to the front today because it's increased as an issue in our world over the last year. And we bring it because Jesus himself came to provide freedom. And we believe that freedom is available not just on the other side of life, but in this life as well. Well, let me welcome back Jez, Rachel, and Allie to the stage. I have a couple questions I want to ask you, and you know, as this is a discussion, we'll see where it goes from there. And I want to uh, first send a question to you, Allie. Allie, when you were going through um, your suicide attempt and that situation, what is it 
that you wished or you think now would have been helpful as support from someone else? Oh, whew. to have anyone first notice. Hmm. I, you know, it, it's not because of nothing that a straight A student in their grade 11 year, well, started kind of said in grade 10, starts to tank and nobody says anything. And unfortunately at the time with the perception of mental <clears throat> health, it was, however, I will say, I deal with this every day with parents. This is not an opportunity to punish consequence or discipline. Mm. That was the way of thinking then. It is still somewhat the way of thinking now. So that's what I got was more punishment and consequences because I was failing my grades. Right. No one was paying attention to this right. or who, who, what, what was going on in here. What I wanted most was a safe place, a, a safe set of arms, a safe ear who I could go to or because I probably wasn't going to go to them because I was so shut down um, and coping was for someone to have said, I see you. Hmm. I see you. And I don't know what's going on for you. But whatever it is, I want you to know, it's okay. And you're not alone. And you can come to me, whether you want to share or not, I will sit with you. And it's going to be okay. I, I probably didn't know. I mean, I was highly emotionally astute at that time. And I could have told you what was going on. Hmm. And my greatest fantasy, actually, at the time, I used to fantasize as a teenager, was to go to family counseling. Hmm. Wow. That was, wow. That, that was my fantasy, other than owning a horse. Yeah. Because, um, because it was the only way I knew someone <clears throat> in authority higher than, than my family could say, this needs to stop. Hmm. This is wrong. You are not wrong. But this is wrong. This is damaging. We need to stop this. So that's what I wanted was, was someone to just say, hey, look, the, you know, for someone to say, hey, look, I notice you're failing. Okay, that's not going to work. You know, hey, I notice you suck at sports these days. That's not going to work. To say, hey, listen, I just want to say I see you. Yeah. And if you ever want to just come and sit with me, you are welcome here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's so powerful and so simple. Isn't it? Yes. Yes. And I do actually just want to add one more thing. If you had said um, for, for what we say, because it is so hard as far as what to say, if someone shares that with, shares with you that they are struggling, yeah. I would do the same thing. So because our brains are wired to, to backpedal and fix and correct and whoa, like freak out, do that on the inside, leave your freak out face for later yeah. and um which is really hard uh and just be wow I really honor the courage it took for you to tell me that yeah what else would you like from me and that person may not know and we need to let go of the fact they don't know what support looks like then mm -hmm. but just uh, I'm here with you yeah awesome yeah. well Jez, I'm, I'm going to turn the question over to you, Jez and Rachel. Now, obviously, each person's experience is not the same. You know, and, uh, and what Allie needed as support as a teenager versus what Jez needed support as a 
middle-aged white men, if I can say that. <laughs> um, you know, it could, could be different. And, and um, yeah, so Jez, if, if you were to think back to those times where you were you know, seven steps, 12 steps deep in your pit, uh, what did you need for support? What would a support have looked like? I think for me, it was um, I needed to I needed to see a counselor. I actually needed that. I, I, need, I needed someone that I could really start to uh, express things because um, I was in my I was in a certain position in business and I was pastoring a church. Where where do you go? Where do you go? There's, there's, you know, it's not like um, and my crisis moment allowed me to go and see someone who I respected. And he was a Christian counselor, but a qualified counselor um, to get oh, I, I kind of my first point with him was like, um, give me the pill and it's all go away. Mm. Uh, whatever it is, I just give me one tablet and it's all gone. Um, and so that was my journey I, I used. Um, and obviously that wasn't the way to do it, but it was uh, for that. Um, just that, that sense of one tablet could fix it all. And it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the process was. Yeah. So you're saying you need you need counseling, and uh, and yeah. maybe just to hit on that point for a moment is, uh, you know, if if you're someone who's who's in this scenario and you need counseling, we've got uh, some options for you. We've got some ways that you can submit a form here, and uh, and someone from our team will get in touch with you and set you up with someone. If you've been to counseling before or you've not been to counseling before, I, I go I see a counselor. I started that during the pandemic, um, and I've just chosen to continue that through. Um, if you see a counselor, you may not find the, the best counselor for you at that time because your personality, my personality, what's going on is different. You need, to, you need to have a counselor that is someone that you can be raw, authentic, and real with. If you cannot bear your soul in that scenario, it's not the right counselor. But that doesn't mean because you've tried one, two, ten, or twelve counselors that there isn't a counselor for you. It just means we still have to find that. And we as a church want to help resource you and support you in that. Now, uh, Rachel, I, I have a question for you. So obviously you walked that journey through with Jez. You've been married, like I said, forever. Um, so <laughs> um, you, you uh, I know that when someone you know who's close to you, whether it be a partner or a close friend is struggling, um, that can weigh on you. Because in a lot of that scenario, I'm sure that as Jez was recovering, you had to carry the whole of you, the whole of your family, the whole of Jez for a lot of that. When Jez was going through that scenario, what did you need for support? I had, I had friends that were, had they known, would have been very supportive. But because, because Jez was in public functioning very well, almost too well, he was the life and soul of the party. <laughs> Um, nobody knew what was going on. So I couldn't, um, I, I felt like I couldn't go and say to somebody, I'm struggling here because it would then show up what was going on in his life. So mm -hmm. I kind of felt well, trapped really because I didn't want to tell anybody what was going on. I didn't want to show him up in front of everybody. Um, so I just kind of carried on, uh, just kept pushing through, push through, let's just get through this day, let's just get through this um, anger explosion, let's just get the kids fed, let's get the kids to school, let's get them to their clubs. Um, and I think if I'd had somebody 
that could have just rung me up and said, how are you doing? Or, you know, hey, do you want to go for a coffee where I didn't have to pretend like nothing was going on bad in my life? That would have been a big, a big help. Just someone that knew what was going on would have been really helpful. Hmm. It's interesting how all, all three of you, your, your answer at the moment has all been people. <laughs> and you know, and here we are. Uh, you know, a year ago was the last time we hosted three simultaneous live services as a church. And isolation being so um, so high in the world right now, still the solution to much of our despair was people loving us and caring for us. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, another question. I'll, I'll throw this to you, Jez. Again, um, is. So we've, we've addressed maybe what you needed for support. Um, but if, if you were to talk to someone right now who was in the same scenario as you were, what would they need to hear? Um, firstly, if I, I would try and explain that it, it's okay to not be okay hmm. where you are. Um, and also as a Christian, we, we, uh, I've been a Christian forever, um, but we have this thing that we, we can't, have these things, we, you know, God is enough and everything like that. Um, one of the, the prim- fun, real important thing is that when you're in that dis- depressed or suicidal state, you have no space, you have no capacity to think um, um, logically, to think anyway. And mm. one of the first things I've subsequently with people have said, look, let's get you to the doctors. Um, if you need to go on medication, let's get your medication. I went on the second time around. I went on medication right. um, because I uh, I needed it. I, I just you know my world was and it was okay to be on medication. Yeah. And as a Christian, I was like, well, you know, God isn't you know. And actually, no, it was okay to, to go on medication. Um, it gave me some space. It gave me some um, headspace to start to think consequentially. Because um, when we're in that mode of suicide, it's a very selfish mode, and depression is very can be very selfish. You don't, you, you are so self-absorbed that, and you don't care. You don't care about anything else. You just think about yourself. So I think that's one of the first things to do. Because until you've got some some capacity to think and process, um, it's very hard to start to deal with some of the deeper parts of why mm. um, we've journeyed that way. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to throw that same question to you, Ali. If you were talking to a teen who felt very similarly to how you did years ago, what would you say to them? I have the opportunity to speak with teens daily on my TikTok and my Instagram accounts. And the first thing I tell them is to get help. The first thing I tell them is because they're rarely geographically from the same location. The first thing I tell them is to seek help, whether it's a parent, although it's often not. um, There's sometimes a family friend or a relative, also often not, that they call a helpline. They call a distress center in their area. Um, So that is always number one. As Jez said, seeking medical professionals is critical And I will say this to parents with all love and respect. When your child comes to you and they share that they are anxious, depressed, or considered or or suicidal, they are not seeking attention and they are not being dramatic. Mm -hmm. You have three jobs. One, believe them. Mm -hmm. It took a ton of courage for them to come to you. Number two, trust them. It's their thoughts and feelings and those are not up for judgment. And number three, get them a medical professional who is skilled and 
expertise will do the diagnosis, not us as parents. Mm. So that I tell, I tell teenagers to do that. And the other thing I tell teenagers in every single thing I do is please know that you are loved. Mm. If every person just knew right now today that they were loved, not because of anything they've done, not because of how they're not being, not because of how they are being, not because of what they did or didn't do, but they're loved right here, right now, wholly and fully, unconditionally loved. This would be a different world. Mm. So I tell teenagers that every single day. Wow. I'm just so, uh, I'm so humbled that you guys would share your stories and uh, share your hearts. And I, I hear, you know, it's, it's like the pain isn't far from you, although it's years ago. Yeah, hearing, hearing so many, it, uh, I'm feeling really emotional right now because the year into this pandemic, the number of messages that I'm getting from teenagers is escalating. Mm. And that feels heavy. And the number of parents I'm hearing from bless them who do not understand and truly feel that the only way to change this is to continue harder and more punishment, discipline, and consequences. The last few weeks, I'm finding that very heavy. Mm. Yeah, because it's, it, 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 I know personally that how much worse that makes the situation and they only know what they know. Mm-hmm. And I believe it says in the Bible, right? They know not what they do, like love them anyway, mm. but these teens need help. I think one thing that I really value that you bring to the table in this discussion, Ali, is, you know, I'm, I'm 30. My children are, what, six and five and in a few days. Um, and you know, and zero, both, yeah, and zero. And uh, you know, both both of you, all of you, you've you've got children who are much older than mine. You've lived through experiences more than mine. And going through these talking taboos series, something I've recognized is um, how soon we need to have some of the conversations that we we are uncomfortable as parents to have. You yeah. know, and I would I would say you know, and and it was important for us to have a disclaimer at the beginning of this service. But I would think. Um, for many of us, we think this is a conversation we need not, need not have with our teenagers. It's an inappropriate conversation. But what I've discovered um, in time recently is that the, the discussions that we won't have as a church and the discussions we won't have as parents are not discussions that our children aren't having. They're just not having us as a source for. Yes. And, and actually, you know, I think it was just you who said this, Ali, that the statistics are between the ages of 10 and 35 Suicide is the leading cause of death in Canada. Yes. yes. And it's growing. And it's growing from the 10 to 14. Right. 10 to 14. Just now, be if, with that for a moment. If, if, we, if we go that way then, so I think, I, I think many of us are uncomfortable with the word suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in some ways, mm-hmm. it's why I've, uh, it's been important to me to say the word a lot in the discussion, uh, just to make us a bit more comfortable with this. Now, right. uh, I, I've been in scenarios where people have 
uh, brought up suicidal thoughts or scenarios and um, had to walk through that. Now, one of my immediate responses is to try and get them off the topic of suicide, that we need to stop that immediately so that they don't think about it or do it. But actually, what is suggested is that talking about suicide is not going to make someone more likely to act out on suicide. But actually yes. talking about it gives them the freedom to unload and have a safe space to talk about it. So if I was yes. to advise people today about suicide, something that we, we don't think naturally is actually it is okay to ask someone, are you thinking about dying? Are you thinking about suicide? But mm. not actually to try and sugarcoat it or, or avoid it, but actually ask it directly. That is one of the best things you can do in a conversation is ask directly, are you thinking about suicide? Have you made plans for suicide? Mm -hmm. Why is it mm -hmm. that you want to die? These sort of mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the studied, I believe the top two reasons that it occurs is number one, which Jez said, is that they feel they're a burden. People feel they're a burden mm. and they need to remove that. Or as <clears throat> was the case for me, was to end pain. Mm. Those are the top two um, reasons but from people who have attempted suicide and been unsuccessful, um, thankfully. Yeah. So I, I do agree that, it's talking about it. I think the stigma that this only happens to bad families. I mean, look, Je Jez was a leader in the church. Mm. Jez was a business leader. This is happening for everyone. This is happening in our minds, not because we're weak or wrong, or we don't pray hard enough, or we don't read the right scriptures. Can we please let that go? <laughs> it's because we are human and horribly imperfect. And thankfully, you know, there is hope mm -hmm. and we can have these conversations with each other to set each other free from the stigma and the pain of even just carrying the thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things for me is just that God's big enough. God's mm -hmm. big enough yes. to live with where I'm at. Um, and in my journey, um, you know, people try to help you and say good, the right Christian thing. And, and I know the answers. I've done the Bible stuff. I know it. And actually, you know, I found that actually um, the reality for me was I got to a point where probably for 12 months, all I ever would read was the Lord is my shepherd. Hmm. And then I put a full stop there. Yeah. That was my Bible content for one year. That was my prayer for one year because I had to unravel that the Lord, Jesus, thinks I'm sufficient. Mm-hmm regardless of everything else yeah yeah and as a shepherd yeah he a shepherd loves his sheep um, and accepts his sheep and finds his sheep and goes to his sheep and so that was a, a very precious scripture to me that i i just kept and other people said other things to me which was great but a lot of it i didn't even think about because i was too you know uh, i was just focused on that and allowing that to and allowing it just to just i didn't feel anything I, I just to just go I'm just going to receive it I'm mm. going to okay I don't know what it means or feels but I'm just going to go okay mm -hmm. and, and that was part of um, allowing God into that um, that he he's big enough to handle my situation and me yeah you know then things that you've said and that are important takeaways is, is um, firstly is this, you can be a Christian and have suicidal thoughts. Um, 
And one of the reasons I say that very clearly is because one of the, one of the tools of the enemy, you know, we, we've talked about that a lot, one of the greatest tools of the enemy is shame. And shame is where you cover things for fear of what may happen. And one thing that we really want to uh, lean into and accomplish with a session like today is actually to remove shame, which we also sometimes call stigma, around a conversation so that you can bring it into light, not for fear of what may happen, but actually for belief in what could happen. Yes. Dark spaces um, and dark conversations are only dark if there's no light in them. But God came to give us light. And as we bring things to the light, there is hope and there's healing and there's opportunity in that. And uh, another, uh, there was a few questions that came in, so I'm just trying to make sure that we address them and, and a few of them have been addressed in here. Uh, one thing that I think, Ali, you pointed on, but I just want to make sure gets clear is so often if you are, you know, uh, so like Rachel, Rachel, you, you, I think we've discussed this before, you've not uh, dealt with suicidal thoughts before, is that right? No. Right. So if, if you sit in that stage, it can be very, very hard, near impossible to empathize with someone who's going through that situation. And so often when you're in that situation, you can use terms or think like, that is the most selfish thing. And you often hear that, that is a selfish thing if someone dies by suicide to do. But for a Jez and a Rach, or Jez and an Ali, things that you've um, said here is the, the reality is those who choose or feel like um, or are thinking about suicide, their belief is that they are doing a service to those who they leave behind. And generally speaking, it's not that they desire to die, but actually desire to end the pain. Yeah. And it's so interesting how when you sit on one side, if you, if you don't have the um, experience behind it, you can see um, what is, uh, appears as selfishness. But when you have the experience in, the, in that person's mind, generally they're doing everything they can to serve other people in their mind which again is, you know, is a deception behind it. Jez, I love when you talked about um, you know, being stuck on one, well, I'd say one verse, but I don't even think that was a full verse that you were stuck on in the no, Bible it wasn't, it wasn't for the whole year. No, it wasn't even, that was it. Yeah, no. One line in the verse. Yeah. And that, that's, that's okay. It's okay to be there in your walk with Jesus at that time. Now, we are advocating entirely for uh, mental health professionals. We are advocating for the medical system. And we also believe in a healing God. But just in the same way that we will pray for someone who has cancer and we will send them to the doctors, we believe the exact same thing when it comes to suicide, depression, or anxiety. We will pray for you and we will believe for healing, supernatural, and miraculous. And we believe in medical professionals that are here to help us and support us through this. Now, some, a question that came in um, was asked, uh, why is it so often that if someone dies by suicide or someone has suicidal thoughts, why is so often the response of others anger instead of compassion? Do either of you want to touch on that before any of you? Well, okay, I'm, I, I understand why anger. Mm -hmm. Um, eight years ago, I had a former client, uh, um, die by suicide and 60 days later, a friend. Hmm. And I spoke at one of those funerals. That was a rough 60 days. <laughs> um, I think 
that anger is a normal and natural response. First of all, it's a normal part of the grieving process. Yes. Okay. So anger and denial. Mm -hmm. Like how could this, ha like that's a normal part of, so I don't want to shame anyone who's feeling angry. I also think that because um, we love this person that we are no longer with so, so much that it feels like a little bit of, but I, maybe I could have helped if you had just asked, I could have helped. Mm -hmm. And it so it comes that anger, I think is arrived at almost out of desperation. Um, like, how could you have done this without even asking for help or, or, and it's out of a lack of understanding of what that is going on. Mm -hmm. And it does leave a lot of people behind. It does. Mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean that that person wasn't trying to do their best in their coping and that these people didn't love them. That's not what that means. But I think there is an impression that it is difficult to be with a story. It is not a reality, a story of my own that says this person chose this person died by suicide because they thought I didn't love them enough. Mm. And I, I can't, I can't be with that. I cannot be with that. So the only way to navigate through that is anger. Mm. Um, and it's not a true story, but it's a story that I think comes out of people for people in the face of suicide. Mm -hmm. So then I've got, uh, I've got two more questions and, um, so the next question, and I'd ask this you know, to anyone who can contribute on it, is uh, if, if you're sitting there, you're someone who is looking for warning signs that someone you know, someone close to you, may be um, dealing with suicide, what are some warning signs uh, that they can look for? Okay. Rachel, were there warning signs okay. looking back you could have seen? Um. Well, anger was one of the first things I noticed that Jez was angry with the kids for very small reasons, just mm -hmm. even just if there was a noise, you know, like they suddenly made a big noise or were playing noisily or they put uh, music on in the car, he'd be like, turn, turn that music off or just, would you know, be quiet, stop what you're doing. And it was all kind of out of context. It was... That it didn't match the response didn't match what was actually going on mm. so that was kind of one of the the first things that was just like why is he like so angry so quickly about nothing um uh looking for um comfort maybe in eating mm. e eating more than what they normally would um chocolate <laughs> um Oh, being more, for Jez, he was being more the life and soul of the party than what he normally was. And yet what was what I went home with in the car after being out somewhere was not the same person that mm. was at that right. event. Mm -hmm. So that it was just um, disconnects of who he was being and who I was actually living with. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there was just little like, behavior of like a little bit of secretive behaviors that I was just, it didn't all add up. That was my kind of thing that I was looking at thinking this, this doesn't all add up anymore. It's something's, something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. It's not, it is, it's wrong. Yeah. So. yeah. I think the, um, I think for someone in that place is that 
um, although you may appear um, to be having it together and whatever you think it is, but you, you, you get to a point where you, you just hate you, you hate yourself, you hate everything about you. Um, so you, 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 you abuse your body in different ways. Um, and it's, it's, um, down to the fact that people stop, I mean, um, just you stop brushing your teeth. Hmm. You start to lose, you know, basic things and identifying how people look after themselves is, you know, there's a difference between, um, uh, being untidy and just being like, dirty and leaving everything and just not, and just no, just apathy against four things. And I think that's something um, you feel, you can feel inside. And um, but certainly the, the anger thing is, is, a, is a big thing. The noise thing for me is an interesting thing because um, I couldn't cope with, because my, my world was so full, it was like white noise and it was, mm. it was like piercing, it was so loud. Um, and that's why I like the radio and things like that. So when I watch and talk to people about noise and sound is is like uh, the brain i think the brain goes okay that's too much there's too much noise and, and it uses emotion to to stop that um because there's nowhere there's no there's nowhere else for it, that noise to go so that was a, that was a big thing for me that, that mm -hmm. triggered me so. mm -hmm. ali do you have anything to add to that um i think what what rachel said is exactly it is there is a disconnect between how someone is in one place and how someone is in another. Hmm. Um, that kind of disconnect, which is exactly because they're performing. And I think Jez said it in a previous conversation with me, he was performing, but he was overcompensating the performance to try and comp like compensate for what was actually going on. Hmm. So noticing that, and also um, <clears throat> this is a, a huge soapbox of mine with teenagers is that apathy is not lazy. Hmm. Apathy is a coping strategy. Apathy shows up when every other strategy is in the rearview mirror. Hmm. And it's the only thing the brain has left hmm. because it's so flooded with cortisol that the access to the emotional brain um, and, and um, intellectual processing, it, it actually physiologically is shut down. Hmm. So apathy is not lazy, okay? Hmm. Apathy is a coping strategy. For, some, for something else. And for teenagers, I'll also say, like scientifically, self-esteem is at its lowest in early, early adolescence. Hmm. So add to that all this other stuff we're talking about. And it's no wonder teenagers go through this kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. No, oh, that's um, very helpful, very good. Well, we're gonna close here in a moment. There's one more question that I'm going to address and then I'm gonna give you each uh, sort of a minute to um, add any closing thoughts you have, if you'd like, and then we're going to provide some resources um, for people to take some next steps wherever they are in this journey, whether they're supporting someone, just want to know how to have a conversation about this, or in it themselves. Um, and the last question that comes up uh, is someone has asked, you know, is suicide a sin? Now, uh, you know, that's a tough question to answer entirely, but let me start by saying this. So the term sin in the Bible is is uh, related to the idea of missing the mark. Another word that is used in the Bible, and you can hear it in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We can use those terms synonymously, trespass and sin. So if you use those terms synonymously, I can, I can easily say that to die by suicide is, is not what God would intend for your life. 
because Jesus has said he's come to give you life and life more abundantly. So that is, is definitely not his intention for your life, for someone to die by suicide. I think ultimately the question here lies, isn't is suicide or death by suicide a sin? Ultimately the question is, is there eternal life after suicide? Mm. Now that question is a question of great debate in the theological world. It depends on your understanding of who Jesus is and what salvation is. Now if we were to understand that suicide is a trespass or something that does not um, exist as the perfect will of God. There are many things in our lives that do not exist as a perfect will of God. Now we have to come to the crux of this question. Is God's salvation sufficient only for the trespasses of my past or is God's salvation sufficient also for the trespasses of my future? In that question lies the answer of whether there is eternal salvation for those who struggle with suicide or any other thing that is not the perfect will of God. That question is not a question I can answer for you. That's a question you have to take back to Jesus. Now, I turn it back to the three of you just for a moment. If you could, in one minute, if there was anything else you wanted to share to those who've tuned in, um, what would it be? I can say. Yes. I was just saying to Jez the other day, I was, I, you know those old boxes that used to have that had like a cigarette inside and it was like in case of emergency, break the glass for people that are trying to quit smoking. I said there should be a box for people that struggle with mental health or anxiety and depression that they have a list of things that they, even when their mind isn't working, there's a list of steps that they're going to do hmm. to stop them from going further and further down into it. So like, get myself to a doctor, go and tell somebody in the church who, or a friend or somebody who I know cares about me, um, start exercising, uh, just like a, a, a thing of steps that you know will help you not to continue going down mm. that road. Mm. And it should be, when your mind's not working, have it so that it's there, you can just read it and you just follow it. You yeah. don't even have to, put emotion into it you just this is what I'm going to do this is my steps that I'm going to take and then I think it gives security to family as well because they know that they have this list of things they're not going to wait till they they're down at the bottom before they say help somebody help me mm-hmm. it's you know, it's nick it in the bud <laughs> that's what I say there's the thing I would say is is um is don't rely on your feelings Okay, because your feelings will take you down further. It's mm. like the Rachel saying, those steps, just do it. Do it out of a function rather than a feeling. I'll need to feel it, then I will do it. We live in that environment. If I don't feel it, I don't do it. That's our world now. And it's not about that. You do it because it's the right thing to help you. Um, and also, just a willingness is that if you did share something, and no one ever shares necessarily the depths of where people are at. No one does that. But just to be able to share that and feel that someone... Um, in church or someone will just accept it and just say thank you for sharing mm-hmm. and not come back with the fix it not come back with well you need this you need to do this this and this just to accept you know and for us is as when someone is willing to say that to us they're not doing well is just to thank them for sharing it mm-hmm. and accepting that mm-hmm. um, and it's not you know um, and, and those are kind of that's a big thing I would say it's like Ali said you're loved unconditionally yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
and and, and we and we're gonna and this is a, this is a journey. You know, mm-hmm. I'm still on this journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, COVID has not been fun for me uh, yeah. in my own world, and you know, I've been going up and down stairs um, emotionally and mentally, um, and it, we're still on that journey. I'm still open and vulnerable to that. I'm quicker at recognizing where I could go into negative that, that, that way. I'm quicker at, I've got tools, I've got ways of coping and, and dealing with things, but I'm still vulnerable. Uh, like earlier on, I wasn't expecting that emotion for me um, because it, it, there's a depth, there's a depth in, in that. And, and, and Jesus is, is always healing. He's always healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it keeps on going. It doesn't, it doesn't just stop. You know, I've moved on from, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, I might have done a few more words. I may not finish the verse yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say similar to what Jez just said, is it's okay not to be okay. So number one, be kind to yourself. Mm. Be kind to yourself. I know that that's not the cultural message, but be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Because as the emotional brain and then the intellectual brain starts to to shut down through coping, simple, tiny things like Jez said, brushing your teeth, those become Herculean Hmm. some days. So I would say set very small baby steps. And again, as Rachel and Jez pointed out, if you can have these these things in advance, that's wonderful. Hmm. I think I would say as a parent to a teen, if you notice this kind of shutting down and you've already got them help and you're seeking medical uh, Um, assistance or support in that, that having the same expectations you had of your teenager pre-mental health challenge or even pre-pandemic is unrealistic. Hmm. Please let them go. Just let them go. This is not that. (laughs) We've never done this. There was no preparation and there was no training. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you there's no coping strategies. (laughs) We're still learning it. So when you go down to letting all that peripheral go, let it go, go to simple to help your child to do things that they find constructive and joyful. And they may not be what you find constructive and joyful. So please let that go. That if you can help your teenager to set tiny baby goals, tiny baby that you think, oh my gosh, are we all the way back there? Yes, actually we are. And that's the best place for them to be. So um, removing expectations of self, you know, you have to get up, you have to get dressed, you have to bake this, you've got to let it go, let it go. And if that's your parent to your teenager, please remove those expectations, love them where they're at, even if you do not understand and get help. um, Because that we are not medical professionals to do diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. please access that which we are fortunate enough to have in Canada and in the world. Well, thank you guys very much. I am uh, I'm humbled and honored that you would come and share with us. It means quite a bit to me. So thank you. Hey, just thank before you. we close, I want to I want to provide um, some resources, and they're going to be up on the screen here for you. Uh, the first here, uh, they're going to put it on the screen so that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the first is this. This is a website. It's called anthemofhope.org. Anthem of Hope was started um, by a couple in the United States, and it's a Christian mental health website. Now, they have some options for you where you can reach out, you can chat to someone, you can join a Facebook group to discuss mental health, or if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, they have a hotline. And another spot that they have on their website is a resource section. They have about 40 
uh, ebooks, free ebooks that can deal with things like loneliness, despair, suicidal thoughts. But it's a great resource if you want something and you're not ready to talk to someone face to face. This is a resource for you. Uh, the second resource I want to let you know about is a counseling service here in Kelowna. Uh, it's called William and Something Associates. The website's on there, and that would be a lot better to follow than what I'm saying. Um, but this is a counseling service that I know of and that, we would, that would be a great place to go and talk about it. They're Christian counselors, and they really have a heart for people. Uh, there's both male and female counselors there, if that's something you want to deal with. And just because it's in Kelowna, one thing that has been positive due to this last year is every counseling service around will we'll do a remote meet with you. So you're not limited by location. Now let me highlight and remind you of something I said earlier in this session and in this service is if you meet a counselor, what will happen is a counselor will give you a half-hour preliminary meeting. It's free. It's a half-hour for you to interview them to discover if that is the right person for you. I know some of us have not done counseling before, but they will give you a half-hour for you to first figure out if it's the right fit. If it's the wrong fit, do not give up. Find someone else. Do another half-hour. It may take one. It may, may take 50. But either way, find someone there. The next two resources I want to give to you are books. And by give to you, I guess I'm not freely giving to you. I'm just providing a link to you. Uh, the first is this. It's finding your way after the suicide of someone you love. You can find this online. I believe it's on Amazon. Uh, this is a great resource. I have not personally read it, but it comes highly recommended. The second book, which I have personally read, is called Fear Gone Wild by Kayla Stockline. I read this in the last year, and if you're in the Okanagan area, it is available at the Okanagan Regional Library. So you don't even have to buy it to get to read it. Uh, this is someone's, uh, this is a lady, she's 31 years old, she has three sons, and her husband died by suicide about four years ago. And this is her journey after that. Um, they were in ministry at the time, and she has a very great perspective on living life after that, dealing with the crux of what that means to be a Christian in that scenario, and what it means to be in a situation that she didn't expect to be in. I highly recommend it. Now, the last thing that I want to let you know about is, again, this QR code, where if you would like to talk to someone, you can talk to someone. We'll connect you. You can provide as much information or as little information as you want. This will send you to a form where you can put your name, email address, phone number, and information. You can use this for any of our Talking Taboos series, whether it's this one or that one, um, this one or another one. Uh, but we just want to support you. And I highly encourage you, if you are um, dealing with suicidal thoughts or you know someone who's dealing with suicidal thoughts, to talk to someone, whether it needs to be anonymous or it's someone you care about closely. Just like what Ali said, we as a church want you to know that you are loved, that you're valued. Jesus died to put a value on your life. The Christian message is wrapped up in that, that Jesus died to say that you are of value. Every other thing in the world wants to tell you that you're of lower value or, or equate you to something, but the Bible is wrapped up in this. The Christian faith is wrapped up in this that God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only begotten son, his only son, that you may have eternal life. He put a price on you to say you are valuable and you are worth everything to him. And we as a church want to remind you of that value and for you to seek help. We're going to close here in just a moment, but would you bow your heads so I can pray for you today? Jesus, you are sufficient. 
God, we know that we struggle with things from time to time. God, we know that this session and this service hasn't necessarily felt easy for everyone, God, but we believe in the name of Jesus that it's brought light. God, we ask for you to continue your work in our lives, in those lives around us. God, that we continue to see you as more than enough and that you give us the boldness to walk out, the courage to share, and God, that you would give us the wisdom to listen when someone shares. We thank you, Jesus, for being with us. In your name we pray. Amen.